Father, we again, we come to your word and uh, we come humbly as, as we finish this chapter and we see another one of these terrifying warnings, Lord. Uh, the, Lord, you're going to tell us about a mighty earthquake that's coming, about the shaking in our own lives, about the fact, Lord, that, that you're a consuming fire. That should terrify us all. Uh, Lord, there's some things here that, that uh, are really scary. And, and Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know the Lord today, who doesn't know you, Lord, then I just ask that, that you do scare them, that you scare them into seeing the reality of, of eternity without you. And, and, Lord, that's part of the message. But as, as you'll show us today, Lord, there's good news in this text for those who know you. There's really good news for those who know you. Lord, and so uh, just show us these things and, and teach us as only you can teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that you do that. I ask it in the name of Jesus. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. If you looked at the title of the text today, you probably uh, have figured out that we're going to talk a little bit about earthquakes. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake or not, but I've been in a couple of them. Uh, a couple of 5.0s on the red. One was 4.5. Five and the other one was a 5.0 on the Richter scale. And if you're from California, you would probably say, well, there's that's, that's nothing to a 5.0 earthquake. Well, I got news for you. There's a lot to a 5.0 earthquake. Uh, that's a really scary thing. I mean, I don't think there's anything in the world that makes you feel more helpless than when you're in an earthquake and the ground beneath you is moving and shaking and the walls are moving and things are falling off the walls and you're wondering about when this whole thing's gonna come down. So, so it's a pretty scary thing. And in the last few decades, we've seen a lot of, whole lot of shaking going on. Uh, just yesterday, I don't know if you noticed in the news, there was a 4.3 earthquake in Oklahoma. Uh, in the United States over the past few decades, we've had several uh, or, or really a few decades back, we had that earthquake in Los Angeles. We had the one in uh, San Francisco. Uh, most of you are familiar with the one that hit Japan. Uh, out, 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 it really hit out in the water and caused a tsunami. Uh, pretty frightening stuff. They say that that earthquake was so strong that it affected uh, the, the, the axis of the earth. That's how, that's how strong that earthquake was. Back in 2004, if you remember, there was an earthquake uh, in the Indian Ocean, uh, and it caused a tsunami that killed hundreds of thousands of people in Indonesia and Thailand. So, so we've seen a lot of, of uh, serious earthquakes in our time. Now, who's behind the shaking? You know, they say it's the fault, see, and there's certainly the, the fault around the Pacific, the, 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 the ring of fire, they call it, the Pacific ring of fire, that's, that's a fault, and they've discovered some other faults. But you know, I believe in a sovereign God. I believe that God controls everything, even the faults that are on this earth. He's created this earth, so he, he knows where those faults are. So if there's a shaking that's going on, then, then I have to believe that ultimately, God is behind that shaking. And, and so I've got to ask why. I mean, not only does God shake the earth in earthquakes, he shakes nations. He shakes 
individuals. I don't know about you, but, but I've had some severe shakings in my life where God's uh, shook me to the core. And so uh, we know that he's behind those things. And, and so the question is, why? Why does God shake things up? And that's what we're going to be looking at in our text today in, in Hebrews chapter number 12. So if you want to turn there, we'll be in Hebrews chapter number 12. And, and last week, we looked at some shaking that was going on. Remember, we looked at two mountains. Uh, the two mountains that, that represent the place where, where men meet with God. And one of those mountains, was, it was shaking. It was Mount Sinai. And, and then what was the other mountain? It was Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, Mount Sinai represents the law, and, and Mount uh, Zion represents grace. Sinai is death. Uh, Zion is life. Sinai is fire and darkness and storms and earthquakes. And Zion is celestial light and peace. It's, it's the place you want to be. At Sinai, trumpets blow and the ground shakes when God is about to speak. And at Zion, you hear the angels singing and, and uh, you, you hear the saints singing glorious praises to the Lord. Now, as we learned last week, when anyone approaches God without Jesus Christ, which mountain do they come to? They come to Mount Sinai. And when they come to Mount Sinai, they are judged by law and they are condemned by law to the eternal death. They're in darkness, and I'll tell you what, there's going to be a whole lot of shaking going on in their lives. And they should be terribly afraid, terribly afraid. If you come to God in any other way other than through Jesus Christ, and I'm not talking about a Jesus Christ that you create in your mind, I'm talking about the Jesus Christ of the Bible, Jesus Christ who is God. If you come to God in any other way than Jesus Christ, then you should be terribly afraid. And that's what the author is going to show us today in this last part of chapter number 12 as we look at this fifth and final warning uh, in the book of Hebrews. Now, you know, we've had to stop and pause and go through these warnings and, and, and almost you hate to do it sometimes because Hebrews is not a book about judgment. It's not a book about death. It's not a book about hell. That's not what it's about. What is the book about? It's about the grace of God that we have through Jesus Christ. What he's been teaching us in Hebrews is that if you'll come to Jesus Christ, if you'll come to God through Jesus Christ, that veil that separates you from God will be removed and you can go right into the holiest of holies. You know what? It's even better than that. I thought about it this morning. It's even better than that. The holiest of holies comes into you. Jesus Christ comes and lives in you. You don't have to, I mean, I think it's great to go into your closet and pray. And Jesus said, hey, when you pray, go in your closet, shut the door, and, and, and it's between you and God. But you know what? You don't have to go to your closet to find God. God is in, if you're a born-again believer, it's Christ in you, your hope of glory. So we have total access to God. But the author of Hebrews, and I believe the author was Paul, he understood, just like I understand today, that when he would be giving these great truths about grace to his audience, 
there would be members in his audience who would not receive those truths, who have never received those truths. They might call themselves Christians, but they were not, they're nothing more than pretenders. And he was speaking, he was addressing a group of Hebrews, and what these Hebrews were doing, they were calling themselves Christians, but they were still hanging on to the law. They were still going back to the temple for worship. They were going through the rituals. They were going through the feasts. They were even going through the sacrifices. And he made it very clear in the book of Hebrews that if you try to add anything to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you're trampling on the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he knew his audience. It's like in any audience, I can tell you, I bet you, in this room right now, there are some people in here that call themselves Christians who are not really Christians. Hopefully I'm wrong. And I, and I, I can't point to anybody and say, well, I know Nathan's not a Christian. He's a pretender. No, maybe Matt. No, I'm teasing. No, I, I know Matt is. I mean, I don't know which one of you are real and which one of you aren't. I mean, you can tell. You, you, you think you can tell, but man, you get shocked sometimes. You can really get shocked sometimes. So you got to give these warnings. And that's what he does here. He gives these warnings in, the, in this book, and, and he gives his last warning. Thank goodness it's the last one. And, and we get it in verse number 25. But there's some really good stuff here. So, so just because you're being warned, don't, don't uh, turn off your, your spiritual ears and uh, listen to what he has to say, and you'll pick up something really good here, I think. All right, now, he says, he says in verse number 25, we're in Hebrews chapter number 12, Hebrews chapter number 12, verse number 25. He says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape, you refused him who spoke on earth. Now, who is he speaking of there? He's speaking of the Jews. And when God spoke on earth, he spoke on earth uh, at Mount uh, Sinai. The earth trembled, and uh, they didn't listen. They never listened. And they all perished in the wilderness. Why did they perish in the wilderness? All of you guys that have been here a while. It was one word. What killed them? What got them? Unbelief. Unbelief. Exactly. And so see to it that you don't end up like that. How much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? Now, he spoke on earth, but now we're being spoken to from heaven. Now, by what means are we spoken to from heaven? Well, he told us, go back to chapter 1 of Hebrews. Look back in chapter number 1. The very beginning of what we saw in Hebrews, or what we heard in Hebrews. Look in chapter number 1 at verse number 1. God who had at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. That's how he spoke in the past. He spoke himself on Mount Sinai. They heard his voice. Uh, but in the past, he spoke in mainly by the prophets. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. So in the Old Testament, he spoke to us by the law and prophets. In the New Testament, he speaks to us through his son. Now, how does he speak to us through his son? Well, you read the Gospels. Read the Gospels and, and you see the life of Jesus Christ. And he speaks to us very loudly through the life of Jesus Christ. Watch Jesus on that cross. You watch Jesus on that cross dying for, you, for your sins, for my sins. 
He's speaking so loudly. And what is he crying out? I love you. I love you and I'm dying for you. But that's, that's not the only way he spoke. I mean, Jesus actually spoke a lot of words, didn't he, while he was on this earth? And, 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 I, and I think, you know, there's a lot. Of, we could sit here and look at a lot of his words, but I think maybe they're, they're summarized best over in John chapter 3 when he was speaking to Nicodemus. So go back a few books, back to the Gospels, and, and at the beginning of the New Testament, and look in John chapter 3. And you remember Nicodemus had come to him at night, and Nicodemus was the great teacher of Israel, and, and he thought he really had this all down, and Jesus kind of shook him up. I mean, he, he shook him up. He really, he, all this learning that he had, you know, all of this great theology, all of his, his love for the Lord. I mean, he loved God. And, and all of his religion, all of a sudden, Jesus kind of throws it all out the window. And he shook up. And so he comes to the Lord and, 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 he, and he says to the Lord, you know, hey, you must be from God. Because nobody could do signs like these unless they were from God. And, and I think at that point he expects Jesus to pat him on the back and say, Nicodemus, you're a really good guy. You, you know, you're one of the great men on this earth right now. You're a great teacher. You've done a great job. And you and I can work together. You know what he says to him? He says to him, you must be born again. Hey, you, you're lost. You're lost as a goose. You talk about shaking a guy up. You must be born again. That's what he tells him in verse number 3. And, then, and Nicodemus argues with him a little bit about it. And he says in verse number 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You must be born again. Now, that applies to everybody. Everybody on this earth. If there's some other way to heaven, then Jesus is a liar. He said you must be born again. If you're not born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And look at verse number 3. He said, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You will never see heaven. You will see God, as we're going to see today, as a consuming fire at the great white throne judgment. But you will not see heaven unless you are born again. And so if you're here today and you don't know that you're born again, you got to get born again. Amen. Or you're going to go to hell. Amen. And so we got to find out how we get born again. And he told Nicodemus. He said in verse number 12, he said, I've told you earthly things that you do not believe. How, how will I tell you... How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's speaking from heaven. This is God speaking from heaven. He's on earth now at this point, but he's speaking from heaven. And he says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is the son of man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the cross. He's referring to Nehushtan, the, the snake in the wilderness, but he's speaking of himself being lifted up on the cross. That whoso, here's, we all know these verses, but that whosoever believeth in him in the Son should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the message that God is screaming out from heaven. That's the message that he's speaking through his son. 
that he loves us so much that whosoever would just believe in him, put their faith in him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. Why does he do that? Uh, because he loves us. For God did not send his son into the world that, to condemn the world. You know, that's not the reason Jesus came. You know, a lot of us, we're condemning the world, but that's not what Jesus has sent us to do either. He didn't come to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. He says the world is condemned already. But he came, he says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. You know, later on, in his ministry, Jesus would say, come unto me, all of you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Where's that rest come? Rest comes simply from believing in him. See, that's the whole message of Hebrews. That's what the author of Hebrews has been trying to teach us, that, that we come to God through Jesus Christ by faith through grace, and that not of ourselves. And we rest totally in him. We rest totally, we live by faith. The just shall live by faith. We rest totally in him for our salvation. We rest totally, totally in him for our sanctification. And we rest totally in him for our glorification. And that's how you come to Mount Zion. That's how you come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the company of innumerable angels, uh, to, the, to the church of the firstborn. To Jesus Christ, the mediator of a better covenant. That's how you come, simply by resting in him. And there's no rest at Mount Sinai. There is no rest. There's only shaking and trembling and fear. But we come to heavenly uh, Zion and not Sinai. All right, now let's go back to Hebrews and look at verse number 26, chapter 12. Verse number 26. He says, Whose voice then shook the earth. Now he's talking back again, back at Sinai. Uh, when, when God spoke to the Jews. And, and all they heard, all, all they heard, they didn't really hear it. They felt his voice. They felt the shaking. They heard the trumpets. But he spoke and the earth shook. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now you want a scary passage, that's one right there. I'm not only going to shake the earth, but I'm going to shake the heavens too. Now, one of the reasons that God shakes things up is to announce his presence. You know, God will shake things up in your life sometimes just to t let you know he's there. He does that. At Sinai, he shook things up and they knew he was there. But you go back to, you can go to the New Testament in Acts. Remember in Acts chapter 4 when the, when the, uh, the church was gathered there and they were praying, they, they had had some really good news and see people saved and, and Peter and, and John had, had gotten released from the Sanhedrin and they were all excited and they were praying in one accord. And the room where they were at shook. He shook the room. Now, what was God saying by shaking that room? Get out of here quick. No, I might have gotten out of there. But, but you know what he was saying? I'm here. 
I'm here with you and I, and I hear your prayers. Maybe one night when you're praying in your closet, the room will shake. And when it does, don't run. It's God telling you he's present. But another reason God shakes the earth is judgment. Is judgment. One of the reasons he shakes up lives is judgment. One of the reasons he shakes up nations is judgment. I mean, that's a scary thing, but he does that. But I got to tell you, there's a, there's, a, there's a shaking coming that's almost unbelievable. And the reason he shakes things up, the reason he judges people is because of one reason. What's that word? Unbelief. He shakes things up because people reject Jesus Christ. And that's where that shaking's coming. And that ultimate shaking that's coming in the great tribulation is coming because all those who believe in Jesus Christ, where are they going to be? They're going to be raptured out of here. And the only people that are going to be left are people who are rejecting Christ. And there's coming an earthquake beyond belief. You want to read about it? Go to the book of Revelation. Everybody's been wanting to study Revelation, so go to chapter 6. And read about this earthquake, then you won't want to study Revelation anymore. Everybody loves Revelation until you get to chapter number 6. And then they say, hey, cut this off. I'm, and you, it's amazing how the crowds dwindle. When you're teaching Revelation and, you, and, you, and, they, and they start figuring out, hey, this isn't too much fun. And, and you look at this sixth seal and you can see it's not. He said in verse number 12 of chapter 6, I looked and then I opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake. That's the earthquake that Haggai spoke of that, that the author of Hebrews is quoting in chapter 12. It's the same earthquake, yet there's coming another earthquake, remember? And this is it. And I looked and he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its figs, its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it was, as, when it is, as, as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth and the great Men, the rich men and the commanders of the mighty men and every slave and every free man hid in themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and they said, Lord, forgive us. Lord, forgive us and please stop this earthquake. That's not what they say. It's absolutely amazing what they say. It shows the hard-heartedness and the stubborn rebellion of men. And they said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. We would rather die than submit to Jesus Christ. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? No one. No one when that day comes. So... You've got this great earthquake. This, this is the earthquake that's spoken of by a lot of the prophets. Spoken of by Joel. Spoken of by Haggai. We see it in the New Testament. We see it in Revelation. And it not only is so strong, it not only shakes the earth, it shakes the heavens. You know, I remember during the first Iraqi war, you remember when Saddam Hussein set the oil wells on fire? And when he set those oil wells on fire, 
you couldn't, the sun turned black and the moon turned red. And I heard these prophecy guys saying, this is the sixth seal of Revelation. Big problem with that, there weren't any stars falling from the sky. I heard recently we had this series of blood moons and people were saying those blood moons are the beginning of the great tribulation, this great seal. Let me tell you something. You ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, you're going to know. If you're still here when you see the things turning red and stuff, you better get, you better, you just kiss yourself goodbye. But, <laughs> but you do know what to do. That's turn to the Lord. You can turn to the Lord. There'll be people saved during the great tribulation. If you're here, tell everybody, all my friends, hi, that I didn't get saved, because I'm not going to be here. I don't, how many of you going to be here? Raise your hand if you're going to be here. Oh, I, Brenda almost raised her hand. <laughs> No, no, no. She, she, missed a, she was going early, missed a question. You're going with me. I'm not going to be, I'll either be dead and gone or raptured and gone. So I won't be here. Now, why is God going to do that? For revenge? His judgment is not revenge. His judgment is love. You know, chap turned me on to a book by G. Campbell Morgan on the, uh, a commentary on the book of Haggai. And that whole book, you get, you get a chance to go read that. I hadn't read it in a while. I hadn't read the prophecy in a while. Hosea, not Haggai. I, I had Haggai on my mind before I go. It was Hosea. But read that book because it's all about how we, you know, Hosea's wife was a harlot and she kept leaving him and he kept going back and getting her. But but and, and, and you, you hear God's heart. And he's saying, I've got to judge you. I've got to judge Israel. But his heart is broken. He hates the fact he's going to have to judge Israel. He hates the fact he's going to have to judge anybody. I mean, judgment is not his revenge. Judgment has, his, it, 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 it has a purpose. It has another purpose. Uh, judgment announces the presence of God. Judgment, uh, I mean, uh, earthquakes announce the presence of God. Earthquakes... Uh, announce the judgment of God. But the judgment of God is not God, God's revenge. Shaking has another purpose, and, and he's going to show us in verse number 27. So go back to Hebrews, and let's go to the next verse, verse number 27. We just have a few more verses here to go. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 27. He says, Now this, yes, once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. You understand what he's saying right there? He's saying the material things will be destroyed, but the eternal things will remain. And what he's trying to do here, and, I, and, I, and because of, you, you'd have to look at the tenses of the verb, but when he says in verse number uh, 27, he says the things that are being shaken, that's present, active, passive. And so that means that's happening now. As you read this, those things are happening. So what he's doing, he's tying this great earthquake, this earthquake that is yet to come, to all the earthquakes that ever take place, to all the shaking of the nations, to all the shaking of individuals. And he tells us that that shaking has a purpose. 
to remove those things that can't stand the shaking so the things that can stand the shaking will remain. Now let me put it another way. To remove the things that are bad so that only the good remains. You got that? That's why God shakes things up. You know, there's another metaphor used in the Bible synonymously with earthquakes, and, it, and, it, and it, it's used the exact same way, and really there's a lot of shaking involved in that metaphor too, and that's the metaphor of sifting, when God sifts. You, you, in ancient culture, when they would sift wheat, it was a two-step process. They would go out and they would get the wheat and they would go to the threshing floor and the threshing floor would be up where on the high part of the hill to where the wind would blow the chaff away. So they would dig their shovels into the, these big, like, look like almost snow shovels, into the wheat and they, they, would, they would throw the wheat up into the air and then the wind would blow the chaff away. That was one step, but they didn't get all the chaff. So they had to sift the wheat. And so what they would use a sifter, like, kind of like a, a strainer, a metal strainer we use now. And it would have these very fine little holes or very small little holes in it so that the fine grain would go through those holes. And they would take the wheat that was left after they got most of the chaff and they would put the wheat on the sifter and then they would shake the sifter. And they would shake it and shake it and shake it and they would have a container below and the good wheat would go into the container and the rest of the chaff would be Satan on the sifter and they would throw the sifter into the fire. I mean, you can see the spiritual illustration right there right away. Jesus used that illustration or used that metaphor. You remember when he used it? You remember on the night of his passion, on the night of the, the, the Lord's Supper, the night before his passion, you know, the, at the Lord's Supper. Remember he told his disciples, the, the, he quoted from Scripture, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In other words, they're going to arrest me. I've been betrayed. They're going to arrest me. And they're going to take me away. And they're going to crucify me. And you guys are going to run like scattered sheep. And remember old Peter. Peter always spoke, never knowing what he was saying. That's what the Bible says. Not knowing what he's saying, what did Peter say? Lord, I will never betray you I will never forsake you I'm not like the rest of these guys I'm going to stick with you to the very end and you remember how Jesus responded he responded and said Peter the devil desires to sift you he desires to sift you now what did he mean by that? He says, Satan desires to sift you. And you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, I'm not going to let him sift you. He just says, Satan desires to sift you. And then here's what he said. He said, so I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail after you are sifted. And when you have returned to me, you will strengthen your brethren. So that tells me that Jesus wanted Peter to be sifted. He wanted him to be shaken to the core. Why? To separate the things that were bad in Peter 
to take those things away so only the good would remain. Now, you've got to ask the question. I don't think I really even have to ask it. What was the thing that was bad in Peter? His pride. His pride, his pride and his self-confidence. He said, I'm not going to flee like the rest of these guys. I will never betray you. I will never deny you. And so he was full of self-confidence and pride. What was he leaning on? Was he leaning on the Lord? No, he was leaning on his own strength. And Jesus knew that he could never use Peter in the way he wanted to use him until that chaff was sifted out of Peter. And so Peter was sifted. You remember how he was sifted? He came to the place. You've got to give him credit. He had the courage to come to the place where they were trying Jesus. And Jesus was in this room and he could see through the room and he could see they were beating him and spitting on him and doing all of these things. And Peter was out in the courtyard watching what was going on. And if you remember, what did he do? He denied the Lord three times, just as the Lord said he would, before the rooster crowed. And when that rooster crowed, you remember what happened? The Bible said Jesus looked him in the eye. Actually, the, the Greek word means he gazed at him. Well, what do you, how do you think he gazed at him? With, I told you so, eyes. I hate you for doing this. I'm going to get you for doing this. No. With eyes of love. With probably tears in his eyes. And Peter couldn't stand it. And so he ran out from that place and he went away and he wept. And he wept bitterly. But he was sifted. He was shaken to the core. And now he was ready to be used by God. He was ready to re receive the strength that he never thought he needed. But now he had it and, and now he was ready to minister to his brethren. I, when God shakes any of his children, you know why he's shaking us? He's sifting us. He's sifting us. He's taking the bad from the good. I mean, so that we're left with, with nothing but good. He's going to keep sifting us, by the way. He's going to keep shaking us, by the way, until we're good, as good as he is. Well, guess what? That means we're going to be sifted for a while. But he's doing that so that we won't lean on ourselves and lean on all the wrong things, but so that we'll lean on him and that we'll have the power that we need to serve others. All right, let's, let's go to the next verse. He says, therefore, and we see the therefore, we ask what it's there for, and we see it in the next part of the verse. He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. After that great earthquake that takes place in Revelation chapter 6, what's going to be left? What's going to be left standing? Just think about it. If the stars fall and the earth is shaken to the core, I don't think the Towers we build are going to be standing. What's going to be left standing? I don't know, automobiles are not going to be in good shape. What's going to be left standing? You know what's going to be left standing? Nothing but the things of the kingdom of God. 
things of eternal value. What's going to be left in your life when a great shaking comes? What's going to be left? What's going to be left when the ultimate shaking comes and you, you pass from this earth and you head to that grave? Well, you won't head to the grave. Your body will head to that grave. But what's going to be left? You know the only thing that's going to be left, the only thing you can take with you are those eternal things, the things of the kingdom of God. The things we receive by our works, no, the things we receive by grace. That's the only thing. And that's why God wants us leaning on him because, because the gifts, the things that he gives us remain forever. What are the things he gives us? You know the greatest things he gives us? You know what it is? Himself. Himself. And he's not going anywhere. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And you know what he tells me? He tells me, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's going to always be there. No matter how bad the shake it is, he's going to be there. His word, his word always remains the same. I mean, the higher critics can't shake it. The cults can't shake it. Nobody can shake it. You know what he says about his word? Though heaven and earth pass away, my word remains for ever past any shaking I love J. Vernon McGee's illustration about the word of God he says the word of God is like a tiger in your backyard we spend way too much time he says trying to defend the tiger the word you don't have to worry about defending the word the word's going to remain forever the tiger can defend himself you let the word take care of itself you know what else remains his love his love remains forever. And no matter what you do, if you're a born-again believer, no matter what you do, he loves you as much now as he's ever going to love you. It remains forever. No matter how much it's shaken in your life, the Lord loves you. And he loves you as much as he's ever going to love you. His righteousness remains forever. You've been perfected forever in Jesus Christ. We saw it in Hebrews chapter uh, 10. You, you've been perfected forever. Well, how long is forever? For, in the Greek, forever. You're, you've been perfected forever. And that new man or that new creature in you, that divine seed, it's not going anywhere. You can't lose it. God's not stupid. He didn't give it to you so you can lose it. You've been given the, you've been given the eternal divine seed of God. You've been given the new nature, and it's not going anywhere, no matter how bad the shaking is. So he says, let us have grace. See, we have those things by grace. We don't get those things by the law. We don't get those things through being good boys and good girls. We get those things by grace. And it's only by grace, look at the last part of that verse, that we may serve God acceptably. It's by grace. It's through the calling of God, the empowerment of God, that we serve God acceptably. And it's only by grace that we truly revere God and have godly fear. And let me tell you something. You had better have godly fear. I don't care if you're saved or unsaved. You had better fear God. You had better fear him. Why? Well, look at the last verse there. The last verse we'll look at, verse number 29. For God is a consuming fire. 
Man, we should all be trembling when we read that verse. God is a consuming fire. Man, we treat God as if he's some genie up in the sky, some little friend of ours, that, and God can be your friend, don't get me wrong, but some little friend of ours we carry around in our pocket and we go to him when we need him, only when we need him. Don't spend any time with him, don't really care that much about him, don't really, you know, we just kind of live our lives and, and call ourselves Christians. God is a consuming fire. We should be frightened of that prospect. He is a consuming fire. That's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verse number 24. You know, we know all those statements, God is love. Everybody, everybody amen. God is truth. God is light. God is life. But we don't run around quoting this one. God is a consuming fire. We should put that on our refrigerator with the rest of them. He is a consuming fire. Man, when I think of that, I think of judgment. You know what that reminds me of? When I think of God as a consuming fire, I'm reminded of Sodom and Gomorrah when that fire came down and destroyed that entire city. Everybody in there. I'm reminded of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. The very sons of Aaron. They were having a good time. They were, they were, making, they were serving the Lord. But they offered up false fire, and what happened? They got some fire came back down on them. The consuming fire of God, and they were consumed, and they were crispy critters just like that. They were gone. For anyone who rejects God's grace through Jesus Christ, God becomes a consuming fire of judgment. The ultimate picture of God as a consuming fire. Just think about this a minute. The ultimate picture of God as a consuming fire is hell. Is hell. Let me ask you a question. Who runs hell? A lot of theologians will tell you the devil runs hell. The devil don't run hell. The devil is going to live in hell, but he's not running hell. So where does that fire come from? That fire that consumes everything for eternity, that comes from God. God is a consuming fire, and that should scare us all. Now, here's the good news. It's about time, huh? Fire is not always a terrible thing. Fire can be a really good thing. Fire can warm you. Oh, man, how the warming fire uh, the love of God warms my soul fire can give you light oh we walk in the light as he is in the light remember in Exodus in, in the Exodus when the Lord went before them I'm reading now from Exodus 13 went before them by day in, in a, a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night a pillar of fire to give them light as so as to go by day and night. See, God can use this fire to encourage people, to empower people. I mean, look at Elijah up on Mount Carmel. Remember what happened? I mean, when that fire came down and consumed that offering, he had the power and authority to kill the prophets of Baal. Remember how at Pentecost, the tongues of fire came down and landed on, on, the, on his children and, and they received the gifts of the spirits. I mean, the, the fire can empower us. 
But that fire, the consuming fire stuff's a scary thing. Go with me a minute over to Isaiah. And look in the book of Isaiah, chapter 33. I'll try to finish this up real quickly here. Isaiah, go past the Psalms, past the Proverbs, a couple of little books, and then you'll get to Isaiah and go to Isaiah 33. And pick up with me in verse number 14. Isaiah 33, 14. Let me read. The sinners in Zion are afraid. The sinners in Jerusalem are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who, and here's why. They all of a sudden, they have a fear of God because they see the Babylonian army about to destroy them and they realize that's, that army's been sent there by God, and they're afraid. And so, they, so Isaiah cries out, Who among us shall dwell with a, the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with an everlasting burning? For God is a consuming fire. Man, that is horrifying. And what's the answer? No one, no one can do that. Because no one can dwell in the midst of a consuming fire. Unless, unless, here's the unless, he walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He despises the gain of oppressions and oppressions of oppressions. He gestures with his hand, refusing bribes. He stops his ears from hearing bloodshed. He never watches TV because he shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. His, he dwell on high. What's he talking about there? Maybe the heavenly Jerusalem. That's exactly what he's talking about. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. And look at verse number 17. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. You will see the consuming fire. His eyes will, your eyes will sing, see the king in, in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. They'll see heaven. You'll see Zion. You'll see the heavenly Jerusalem. But wait a minute, man. I don't know about you, but I got lost in this, this last part of this passage. I mean, I, I don't make the grade. I don't live righteously all the time. Now, some of you might. I don't, certainly don't speak uprightly all the time. If you've ever gossiped or slandered, neither do you. I don't... I maybe despise the gain of oppressors, but I, and I refuse bribes. Maybe I could say that, but I certainly don't always shut my eyes from seeing evil or hearing of bloodshed. You can't help but hear of bloodshed in the United States of America anymore. So that's a tall order. I mean, if you want to see the king not as a consuming fire, that's a really tall order. In fact, I would put it on the level of impossible. Impossible. And the Bible says no one has seen God at any time. Why has no one seen God at any time? Because if they saw him, they're dead. Because God is a consuming fire. 
So how in the world will we ever see God? How in the world will we ever see heaven? Well, the answer is in the story of Moses. When Moses saw God. Very interesting story, isn't it? Moses was just out there herding his sheep. And he saw this bush that was a consuming fire. He saw this fire in the bush, yet the bush didn't burn. Why didn't the bush burn? Who was in that bush? God was in that bush. And God is a consuming fire. And yet the bush did not burn. Do you know why the bush didn't burn? Because in the bush was the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, who also said, I am who I am when Moses asked him his name, God Almighty. But it, that angel of the Lord is our mediator between ourselves and God. And the reason that bush wasn't consumed and the reason Moses wasn't consumed was that one day Jesus was going to die on that cross for Moses. And so Moses could see God. And he died on that cross for you and me. Yes, he's a consuming fire. But yes, we have Jesus Christ. And because we have Jesus Christ and his righteousness, we will be able to live with God forever in that heavenly Jerusalem. When I was teaching accounting in Memphis, I was up on the fourth floor of a classroom building when a 4.5 earthquake struck. And I got to tell you, that was frightening. The building was swaying back and forth. The books on our desk, my book, my lecture notes, and the students' books were scattered all over the floor. And the desk began to, there were people weren't sitting, they began to fall. And I didn't know we were going to die or not. And I wasn't saved at the time, so, man, I, was, I, was, I, I wanted to run, but I didn't know if running was a good thing to do. And I wanted to act cool because, I, man, I, I had a lot of pride. Didn't want, I didn't want to cry or anything in my class. So I just tried to act brave. And then the earthquake ended. I went down to the first floor as soon as it stopped with the rest of the class. I let class out, went down to the first floor. They were still having class. They were still having class. I said, what, what, how are y'all having class? We just had an earthquake. Oh, we felt a little shaking down here, but, but that was it. Why didn't they feel any shaking? Because they were standing on the foundation of the building. And you look around this world, friends, and there is a whole lot of shaking going on. There's a shaking coming that's going to shake the stars out of the sky. 
There's probably coming a time in your life where there's going to be some serious shaking going on. If you haven't already happened, it's going to happen some more. But here's the secret to living the Christian life in a shaken world. And that's to live close to the foundation. As close as you can to Jesus Christ. And if you're close to him, when that shaking comes, you're going to go right on shaking. You're going to go right on living. You're going to go right on with your peace and joy because, because you know that nothing can shake the things that you have that are of value. The things that he's teaching with us here are not things to be trifled with. I mean, there is a shaking coming. There's a shaking coming to your life, I promise you. Beyond anything you can imagine. There's a shaking coming to this world beyond anything this world can imagine. If you know the Lord and you're drifting off away from the Lord, that shaking's going to be tough on you. It's going to be really tough on you. Even if you're a born-again believer, get close to the Lord. Get in His Word. Spend time with the Lord in prayer. Stay close to the foundation. And you won't even feel it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you teach us through your word. The encouragement we have here, even in these warnings. An encouragement and an admonition to stay very close to you, Lord. Because there is a great shaking coming. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, that shaking's going to be their end if they wait too late. I, I just beg you, Lord, if there's someone here today that, that, that doesn't know you, that you just draw them close to you, and maybe this scared them a little bit, that's good. They should be scared if they don't know you. Father, just draw them to you as, as only you can do. And, and, and you're shaking, Lord, again, as we learn today, is, is your love. It's where you want to shake out those bad things so nothing but the good in us, Christ Jesus, remains. Lord, we just thank you for your word and all you teach us. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.